Well, I am not sure what I did to get placed as the second to last speaker. I'm sure you're all tired, and it's good for you. I'm feeling merciful. So <laughs> we will keep this short. And uh, as Ivor was going over things, I was like, well, I can't talk about that, and as Brian was. So I don't have much. Um, but I do want to talk about the influence of John Calvin upon John Knox in it, maybe a little more focused way than we've heard from Ivor Martin or from Brian and um, the relationship between those two men, we've heard numerous times about that. In his final days, John Knox had a book laying by his bed as he was dying, and it was John Calvin's sermons on Ephesians. You can actually buy a publication of that today by the Banner of Truth, and um, that gives us an insight into how significant Calvin's ministry was to Knox. During those times when he was in Geneva, Knox had no doubt sat under Calvin's preaching through the book of Ephesians, and it had shaped his own preaching. There's such a simplicity to these men who had so much depth to them. But that book lay next to John Knox as he lay dying, and um, uh, before Knox had come to Geneva for the first time, he was there several times from between 1554 and 1559, as we've heard. Um, But Calvin's writings were already translated into most of the languages of uh, the European nations at that time, and and many, many refugees and exiles were streaming into Geneva. It was was becoming a central place. Uh, There were uh, strangers coming from England, France, Poland, Hungary, Spain, Italy, Germany, from all over, and they were finding refuge there. And that's why many of Calvin's writings were being translated into those languages. Uh, Many of the sermons of Calvin were translated into English by a woman named Anne Locke, who was a close friend of John Knox. We'll actually find correspondence letters that Knox wrote to her. And on one occasion, um, Knox wrote to her and, and was pleading with her very early to come to Geneva. And this is what he said, In my heart... I could have wished, yes, I cannot cease to wish, that it might please God to God and conduct you to this place where I neither fear nor am ashamed to say, and here's the famous quote to Anne Locke, who translates Calvin's sermons, that Geneva was the most perfect school of Christ that was ever in the earth since the days of the apostles. In other places, he says, I confess Christ to be truly preached, but manners and religion to be so seriously reformed, I've never seen them in other places besides. So you can see the impression that the Reformed experiment in Geneva was leaving on Knox. He had seen something he had never seen anywhere else. That's going to shape so much of what Knox um, is going to seek to do. Um, For good or ill, Knox is going to try to replicate the Genevan experience in Scotland, something that Calvin never really wanted Just as an aside, Calvin wasn't a sort of megalomaniac like so many in our day. You know this, Calvin almost never wrote about himself. He was very self-deprecating. He did want to see the Reformed Church expanding and growing and developing, and he wanted to see unity, uh, a point that's going to become very important in the relationship between Calvin and Knox. But he never wanted the Genevan experience replicated throughout the world. He didn't want little Genevas everywhere. He, he knew that he had something unique. Um, Knox had come to view Calvin in a fatherly manner 
once he gained greater introduction to them. Now, when he first came to Geneva, uh, Knox uh, wanted some time with Calvin. He didn't get that. He was quickly handed off to Pierre Verret, uh, but he was welcomed into the city. And it wasn't until he came back on his second exile that he really um, started to build a friendship with Calvin. And he will address him as his father. And, and I don't think he means that religiously as in a sort of um, uh, papist way of speaking, but that I think Knox really viewed Calvin as if he was sort of his mentor. Um, he'll, say, he'll say at certain times that he had no one other than Calvin. Um, now, the first time that, that Knox came, Calvin was too busy to meet with him, but he did help him on. And then when he came back the second time, Calvin introduced Knox to the company of pastors. Now, there's a book you guys maybe have heard of called Calvin in the Company of Pastors, Scott Manich. It's excellent. It is a scholarly detail of how Calvin sought to develop this ministerial fraternity and the importance of that. Uh, many of the ministers in Geneva were not John Calvin. Um, there are things in that book that are hilarious, and I'm not going to say them here because there's children. Um, but some of those ministers were not good people. Um, but Calvin was working to even reform that aspect, and so he brought Knox into the company of pastors. And uh, I want to read this from Jane Dawson. You heard already that she wrote sort of the definitive work on Calvin and Knox, and she says, in spite of the rushed reception Knox had previously received from Calvin, Knox chose Geneva, hoping for a chance to study. Once resident in the city, he made friends with the company of pastors, and in particular with its secretary, Jean St. Andre. Around this time, Knox probably adopted or acquired the Latin name Tynotarius because he came from the river Tyne. So the company of pastors gave him a nickname. You know you're in the inner circle when you get a nickname. They called him Tynotarius. And, um, and Calvin himself expressed his affection and the affection of those other pastors for Knox when he wrote in a letter to him. It was delightful not only to me, Calvin says, but to all the pious whom I make partakers of my joy to bear of the very abundant success of your labors. He says elsewhere, meantime, we are as much concerned for your dangers as if the warfare was common to us. Calvin looking on at what Knox is doing and saying, we are so happy to hear how well it's going and we are there with you in spirit. And then Calvin ends that letter by saying, farewell, excellent sir and brother, most dear to us. So you see the affection, you see the friendship, you see the camaraderie that had finally developed in that four-some-year period in which Knox is there uh, in and out of Geneva. Uh, just as an aside, I don't want to go into this, but Knox pastored an English congregation in Geneva that was for exiles and refugees. So he had a very fruitful ministry there in the city. Uh, he also created a number of stirs and controversies even there in Geneva, as he will do in Scotland. Um, and yet, um, Calvin viewed Knox as a dear friend, and Knox viewed Calvin as a man he needed. Listen to this. He wrote to Calvin, he said, later in life, I am a continual trouble to you. Makes you wonder if he knew that, why he kept doing it, but I am a continual trouble to you, and I have no other to whom I can confide my anxieties. 
he, he really saw a confidant in Calvin that he didn't have in anyone else in those days. Now, I want us to briefly consider the personalities of these men, because that so much plays into this. And I mentioned this last night in the Q&A time. We often don't talk about the complexity of personalities in the Reformation, and we, we kind of think all the Reformers are just these monolithic automatons that, well, he did it, and, he, and they all did the same thing. And they didn't, and they weren't the same people. And um, there is a very complex history. Uh, John Cunningham, a 19th century historian in his Church History of Scotland, wrote this, and listen carefully. Knox was a rough, unbending, impetuous man, but fond of fun and full of humor. It sounds really complex. Calvin was calm, severe, often irritable. That comes out in his writings. Cunningham says, but never impassioned. Never impassioned. Um, He says, Calvin rose in pure intellect above all his peers. There's no doubt that Calvin exercised a great influence on the mind of Knox. Knox, though the older of the two by several years, he was born sometime in the early 1500s, 1505, 1506 maybe, older than Calvin. Nevertheless, he was just beginning his work while Calvin's work was coming to a close. So there's this interesting dynamic, very different personalities at play and that is going to play into the influence. Now, let me just go ahead and uh, pick back up on the trumpet blast that you've heard about from Ivor and from Brian already, um, because the issue of political resistance is one of the most central issues, and one that we really need to give heed to in a day when we have a lot of conversations about those sort of things. Um, Calvin and Knox did not always see eye to eye. Knox was consumed with the government in Scotland, and particularly, as we've heard, the rule of Mary, the tyranny of Mary. While in Geneva, he probably made the greatest misstep of the Reformation. I'm not sure if this is an overstatement. Knox wrote there while he was in Geneva, and Calvin didn't know he had written it. That's never good. (laughs) He wrote, he wrote, the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. All these titles, how did they afford with the printing press? I mean, long titles. The first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. Calvin had to defend himself against the harm of this work, and at one point he said, an evil which cannot be redressed, we can't go in and fix it, had better be hushed up than publicly canvas. Calvin essentially was saying, look, the best thing we can do is just ignore it. So hopefully it'll go away. <laughs> um, but it did cause great issues for Calvin in the Reformation. The history behind the writing of that bombshell treaties had direct correlation and implications for Calvin. Um, uh, Calvin had to correspond with William Cecil, who was the secretary to the queen on numerous occasions. On one occasion... Calvin had written Cecil um, because Cecil had told him that a gift Calvin sent trying to appease the queen was not accepted by her. He had sent her his commentaries on Isaiah, I believe, and she had sent word back that she would not receive that gift from him. Um, And uh, Calvin responded. He had to defend everything that Knox had done by publishing this 
this book foolishly. And I'm going to read this to you because I think it's really helpful to know what was going on in Calvin's mind. What was the background of this? What conversations did Calvin and Knox have? Listen to this. He says, two years ago, he's writing to the Queen's secretary in 1559. Two years ago, John Knox, in a private conversation, and he chooses every word perfectly, in a private conversation, asked my opinion about female government. I frankly answered that it was a deviation from the primitive established order of nature, but that it ought to be held as a judgment on man for dereliction. Nevertheless, certain women had sometimes been so gifted that the singular blessing of God was in them, and it made manifest that they had been raised up by the providence of God. I'm going to skip down here. He basically gives the example of Deborah and Huldah and says, you know, you need to slow your roll on hating any woman in a political role. And Calvin finally says, in my judgment, it is not permitted to unsettle governments that have been set up by the peculiar providence of God. So Calvin was not in favor of what Knox was doing. And interestingly, Knox did not listen to what Calvin was telling him. Um, you know, there's so much here, but Elizabeth was very Protestant, unlike Mary, her sister, her kin. Um, she's very Protestant, and it has been argued, and I think it's true, that we may never have had a Church of England, and the Reformation would have spread in such a way that England would have become Presbyterian if Knox had never written that book and he had listened to the counsel of Calvin. And it's easy to sit back now and say, yeah, but look at all the great things Knox did. But Calvin warned him, and the damage was great. Um, I mean, the Puritan movement, in many respects, came to an end in some ways because of Knox's impetuous writing of this book, a word to us, a caution. Um, Knox's views were at variance with Calvin's. That's clear. Calvin's reputation was at stake. And as I noted already, he had to do great damage control in corresponding with the Queen's secretary. Now, I don't want to be overly critical. There were many good things that came about through the relationship of Calvin and Knox. I want to just briefly consider this. The doctrine of predestination. We like to tie that to Presbyterianism often and then beyond that, we tie it to Calvin. We really should tie it to the apostles and then to Augustine. And it's been there in the stream of church history for 2,000 years. It, it is prominent in Calvin as it is in Luther. And there are distinctions that I won't go into between the way they, they understand the doctrine of predestination. But Knox most likely read Calvin's Institutes in 1550. He had access to them as the chaplain during that period, um, and Knox will go on to write several important books, the most of which is probably later in his ministry, 1560, he published On Predestination. So that's just after the time he's in Geneva. Before that, most of his books, he doesn't talk about predestination at all. In a sermon he preaches on Luke 4, which very clearly has Jesus teaching the doctrine of election and predestination, um, uh, he doesn't even mention it early in his ministry. And then when he writes on predestination in 1560, he does something very unusual because Knox is not a man who cites other people. 
also very telling. He, he almost never mentions others in his writings, but in that book, he mentions Calvin throughout. And he will actually rush to Calvin's defense to defend him against the many attacks Calvin was having for propagating the doctrine of predestination. I often wonder if Knox kept Calvin's sermons on Ephesians by his bed because there is so much in that opening chapter on election and predestination, and he had valued so much what he learned from Calvin. Now, Jane Dawson does make the point that there are differences, and and I am not sure they're as clear as she attempts to make them between Knox's understanding of predestination and Calvin's, and she essentially says Calvin focused more on double predestination and less on the will of God, and Knox focused more on the will of God and less on human sin, and, and it's complicated. But the point is Knox very clearly learned so much about the doctrine of predestination and integrated it into his ministry from Calvin. Um, I want to move on very quickly. Another thing that Knox really gleaned from Calvin, his relationship and what he had witnessed in Geneva was uh, that the importance of Christian education. Knox will go back to Scotland and he will um, labor to establish some of the most significant theological schools in the history of the Reformation. Um, Scottish Presbyterianism and Scottish ministerial education are is the zenith in many respects of theological education um, in Reformation history. And Knox gets that from seeing that most perfect school of Christ in Geneva. He sees what Calvin's doing in training ministers, in planning churches, in seeing the importance of theological education. Douglas Campbell puts it this way, Knox returned from Geneva fully impressed that the education of the masses is the strongest bulwark of Presbyterianism. And let me say, in a day when we are constantly lowering the bar of theological education to the least common denominator, it would do us really good to listen to that. He understood that the education of the masses is the strongest bulwark of Protestantism. What's one thing we can do to make sure that Protestantism and a robust reform Protestantism continues is we can educate congregants and the masses. You know that old saying, so go the pastors. We could also say so go the seminaries. Seminary professors, so go the people, so goes the nation. What comes from the pulpits and the educational institutions affects the people, and that affects the nations. And Knox understood that. Um, Campbell says he understood that it was the surest foundation of a state. And so under his influence, these schools were established throughout the kingdom to accomplish that great work. Now, one of the interesting things is when, when Knox comes to Geneva, He is coming because he himself is seeking out theological education. Knox was not nearly the theologian that Calvin was, and he knew that. I think Knox wanted to get close to Calvin because he wanted to to glean everything he could from him because he knew if I make myself a leech to him, I will be the better for it. And so in much of the correspondence, and we don't have a lot of the letters that were written between Calvin and Knox, and, and we're not sure what happened to them. That's one of the sad um, it's one of the sad things about this period of church history. But in those letters we do have, we see Knox often writing Calvin 
with certain theological questions. And, and you, really get the, the, you really get the idea that Knox is developing his theology and in interaction with Calvin. One of the ones I found most interesting um, is a letter that Knox had written to Calvin on August 27, 1559, after his time in Geneva, and it's, it's about the complexity of covenantal baptism, infant or household baptism. And I, I was reading all the correspondence, and I thought this was one of the most fascinating. Knox had asked Calvin this question, should we baptize the children of professing believers if they are under discipline or if they have become infidels? It's a very complicated question, I thought. And this is what Calvin said. I'll just read a very short portion. He says back, writing back in 1559, November of 1559, as each person is not admitted to baptism from respect or regard to one of his parents alone, but on account of the perpetual covenant of God, Calvin said, so in like manner, no just reason suffers children to be debarred from their initiation into the church in consequence of the bad conduct of only one parent. You even see the moderation of Calvin in that answer. Um, Now, we have heard from Brian that the most significant and certainly the most significant issue for John Knox was the issue of worship and idolatry, and Brian's already unpacked that for us. Um, So much of what Knox is writing to Calvin centers on the issue of political resistance because of the imposition of liturgical practices. So as the state was seeking to impose uh, liturgy from the, the Church of England, Knox wanted to know how much uh, political resistance should go into the removal of those practices. I mean, Knox is ready to just take every nation on. You get the sense. You get the sense. That's why he was a bodyguard, by the way. I mean, <laughs> Wizard had to see something in him because you don't make somebody a bodyguard. And then I thought, well, how good a bodyguard could he have been if Wissert was martyred? I and mean, that's never talked about. Maybe that's why he quit being a bodyguard. <laughs> but <laughs> regarding those practices, he did write Calvin on numerous occasions. And, um, and, and Knox would sort of write Calvin, and, and some of his fellow Scottish countrymen would write Calvin to get the answer they wanted. I don't know if you've ever had somebody do that. They write you a question, but they're really just wanting you to agree with them. Some, some of Knox's correspondence is like, right, we should do this, right? And Calvin gets frustrated at times. Um, at one point in a letter Calvin wrote to Knox on April 23rd, 1561, Calvin expressed his frustration with Knox's friends and countrymen who themselves went on to write him on several occasions to see if they could manipulate Calvin's words in order to support their views. So Calvin knew what was doing. All these different ones were writing him the same question. He's like, wait a minute. They're trying to see if I say something in a different way that they can then use. So they're, they were good lawyers, I guess. Calvin responded in a letter to Knox, and he said this, um, because Knox had to exonerate himself because he felt like Calvin was saying, you're behind this. And so 
Calvin responds to Knox's defense and said, I'd received from you another letter in which you took great pains to exculpate yourself because I felt offended at being consulted a second time by your friends and countrymen about certain questions respecting which I had already given them an answer. But in that same letter, listen to this, even though Calvin's irritated, Calvin's respect and admiration for Knox comes out, which I find very fascinating. Same letter. In that letter, Calvin says, after addressing that, I rejoice exceedingly that the gospel has made such rapid and happy progress among you. Um, And then he bemoans the violence that was being directed at Knox. There was a deep respect Calvin had for him and what he was doing and what was happening. And he says this, he says, the power of God is the more conspicuously displayed in this that no attacks either of Satan or of the ungodly have hitherto prevented you from advancing with triumphant constancy in the right course, though you could never have been equal to the task of resistance unless he who is superior to all the world had held out to you from heaven a helping hand. It's beautiful. He saw the hand of God in Knox's ministry. Even with all the things that irritated him, all the trouble that Knox caused him, um, now, I will tell you that Calvin warned Knox to be more moderate. And I'm again going to just press this. Calvin saw that as a great weakness in Knox. Um, I think in our day that's important because we, we see people that think being radical is being faithful. We see people that think being militant is being bold and God-fearing. And, and that's not always the case. You know, Calvin is essentially going to say, and this is the last correspondence I'm going to read, Calvin is essentially going to say to Knox in a letter, look, the practices that you are seeking to fight against, these worship practices that, that we shouldn't want, he's, he's going to say, and they are bad and we should want to get rid of them. And we should want the church to be as pure as we can have it be. But then he's going to say this, listen. He says... Um, He says he's more concerned over factions in the church over how to deal with these things. There were factions in the Scottish church over what should be done. And Calvin essentially says that you need to to put down the factions. You need to strive for unity in Christ. And he essentially says you need to be more patient in bringing about reform. I found that to be fascinating. You know, Calvin had a long view of ministry. You really get that sense. He had a long view of ministry. Knox had a very immediate view of ministry. And there's, there's a word there, especially for overly zealous ministers. I don't know who coined this. Ligon Duncan has often said it to young men. You know, don't overestimate what you can do in one or five years and don't underestimate what you can do in 20 years. It's a good word. Um, Calvin, Calvin will essentially um, mentor Knox in those ways, and sadly, Knox will not listen to him. Again, I, I just want to end this talk with a couple pastoral notes. The first is, that we need mentors. 
John Knox needed Calvin to be a mentor, and he found a mentor in him. And the fruit of that relationship is immeasurable. I mean, we're sitting here on a mountain in Tennessee talking about this. Um, that the fruit that can come from seeking out mentors. Knox, Knox kicked down Calvin's door till he got a, an avenue to be mentored by him. And, and we, should, we should also seek to do so from older and wiser and godlier men, uh, spiritually older, wiser and godlier men and women. Um, I'd also note here that we need to reclaim, as Knox did, gaining it from that most perfect school of Christ, a, a serious love of the importance of theological education. Um, we need that more than anything in our day. Our churches need that. Um, it's not always easy to figure out how we contextualize that in the, the um, polyethnic culture that we live in, but, but we need that so desperately. And really, the Reformation was built on that. It was the bulwark of Protestantism. Um, I'd also say that we need ministers and theologians that we can go to while wrestling through difficult issues, um, you know, Knox displayed some humility by going to Calvin over difficult issues. He, he was saying, I don't know the answer to this. And we need to be able to seek out um, and think through the hard issues and seek out those who have thought through them better than us. And then I want to leave us with this because I've hit on this so many times. We really need to ask ourselves the question, in my zeal for the Lord, for the purity of worship, for... Uh, freedom of religion, for all of those things, am, am I listening to others, what they have done, what their counsel is, what their advice is, or am I just seeking to rush headfirst into the battle, a bull in a china shop because no one else is doing it? I can't tell you how many times I read on a weekly basis online, we're saying it because no one else is. Well, no, I just saw 10 other people say the same thing. <laughs> so there is a word of caution there. Um, while God did have his hand upon Knox and Calvin and blessed their labors tremendously, we'll never know what could have come if Knox had heeded the counsel of Calvin. That's a warning to us. And yet we are grateful for what God did through these men. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you and praise you for the friendships that you have forged throughout church history. Oh, there are so many friendships of so many men upon whose, who you had your hand. We thank you for raising up John Knox. We thank you for raising up John Calvin. We thank you for um, giving them different personalities. We thank you for using them in the ways that you did with their respective personalities. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn from them. We do pray that you would make us a people who are eager to follow their examples where they have followed you, Lord Jesus, and where they have acted with wisdom and where they have acted with faithfulness. We pray that you would help us to learn from those lessons where there has perhaps been failure, where there could have been a wiser course of action. But Lord, we pray that you would make us a people who are zealous for your glory as they were. 
We thank you, our God, for what we've heard today. We thank you for the meal that we're about to have. We do pray that you would sweeten our fellowship this evening, and we pray that you'd prepare us to come back and listen to uh, Dr. Richard. We thank you and praise you for your goodness to us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.